Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, Broadway superstar Sam Harris on his new stage show and film, Ham, a musical memoir. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, hello, Endeavors fans. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a safe New Year. You were able to have some interaction with family or roommates or or loved ones or, or whoever it was. Keep trucking because we are slowly starting to come out the other side. Back in 2007, which was hard to believe was the early days of YouTube and social media, I remember getting my Facebook in early 2007 and had sort of, I guess, been on YouTube kind of starting the last third of 2006. And there was a lot of, back then it was was all vloggers and kind of nothing else. I mean, it still is, but there's a lot more out there now. There were sort of two people I was becoming aware of who both happened to share the same name, although one was a YouTube YouTube star and and one wasn't. Uh, Sam Harris. One Sam Harris you might know, is an author, neuroscientist, uh, and member of what's sort of known as the the four horsemen uh, of new atheism. But he's not my guest today. Uh, there's also another Sam Harris uh, who's been on Broadway for 30-odd years. Uh, he's a singer, he's an author, he's an actor, and he is uh, the Sam Harris that I will be talking to today. Although, of course, if you go and look up on Wikipedia... There are four other Sam Harris's, Sam's Harris, Sam Harris's, that have entries. Uh, there is a Australian basketball player named Sam Harris who has who has played ten seasons in the Southeast Australian Basketball League and two seasons in the National Basketball League. There is a New Zealand rugby footballer named Sam Harris. There is a theater producer from the early 1900s named Sam Harris. And of course, the lead singer of the rock group X Ambassadors is also Sam Harris. But my guest today, Sam Harris the singer, uh, got a start on Star Search. In its inaugural season way back in 1983. I can't believe Star Search has been on that long. And he won it. Uh, his signature song became Over the Rainbow. And since then, he has appeared in such Broadway musicals, classics as Grease, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, one of my favorite shows, The Producers, The Jazz Singer, Pippin, and the stage adaptation of the first Wives Club, of which he was part of the original cast out in San Diego. What's interesting about Sam is... 
unlike a lot of these Broadway stars who live and work in New York, uh, Sam has spent almost all of his career in Los Angeles. And that's why that in addition to all his Broadway shows and his accolades, uh, he's also done some film and television. Uh, in the 1980s, he co-created the sitcom Down to Earth uh, and has also appeared on shows such as The Class, Rules of Engagement, CSI, and The Wayne Brady Show. He has also released nine platinum-selling music albums. And, if that weren't enough, has also authored a couple of books. He talks about all this, as, long, as well as his friendships with Bridget Moynihan and Billy Porter, uh, who both, in a roundabout way, helped him on his new film called Ham, A Musical Memoir, uh, which is a filmed version of his acclaimed one-man stage show. Uh, it is now available to stream on Lamley Theatres, that's L-A-E-M-M-L-E, -M -M uh, starting uh, as of December, and starting on January 7th, it will be available for streaming and on demand. This is me with Sam Harris. Perfect. Sam Harris, hello. How are you this afternoon? Just fantastic. I mean, considering that the world is falling apart <laughs> and no one can see anyone. Other than that, it's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, and I'm grateful that we're all healthy. How how is the uh, how are the restrictions over there? How's how's Newsom been doing with all that? Well, we have a new lockdown, and so, but it just makes sense, you know. I mean, we just cannot keep doing what we've been doing because it hasn't been working. It's a shame that it's around Christmas, but it's probably the best time because it, you know, deters people from making poor choices. But it is what it is. It's temporary. I keep saying that it's temporary. <laughs> yeah. Temporary. And the other thing I keep saying to myself and my friends, my whiny friends, suck it up. Just suck it up. We'll get through it. It's one year. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the, you know, the weather influences, you know, your social plans, I guess. And yeah. was it, was it harder, you know, you're in sunny California. Was it, was it harder to stick to the restrictions when the weather was super nice out? Well, the, the restrict, no, I mean, we can be outside. We can go to parks. We can walk on the street. We can take the dog out. We can go to the beach. We can do things that are outside. I think that you're right, that it's a weather uh, issue. So places that you can't be outside, it's a little rougher for the mental health, you know? Yeah. You know, and it, as, as someone who has made a living performing in front of the public for 30 years, how, how has that affected you? How do you think theater is going to be affected going now and going forward? Well, they're saying, you know, that Broadway's not going to come back for, uh, you know, a, a year at least, another year, probably into 2022. And it's just sad. It's just sad because I think at this time, we need it most. We need to have a common experience with other people and laugh and cry together and think together and, you know, have that uh, reflection of ourselves. 
So I think from everything from whatever, stand-up comics and clubs where we need to laugh at ourselves and um, and to theater, certainly, it's it's gone. However, I have made that bridge, have not, have I not, from filming my theater show and putting it out there. So even though you can't sit in a theater with other people, um, there are certainly advantages to film and that you get close-ups and you get a more intimate uh, take on the show. You know, on that note, film has been moving online, film and television has been moving online for a while. We're seeing bands, musicians doing a lot of virtual concerts. Could virtual theater, is, is that a realistic thing that could happen, do you think? I actually, I do, uh, ultimately. It's just the problem is, it's not like, <clears throat> it's not as simple as a band because real, you know, theater on a production level is hundreds of people, of, of stagehands and crew and, <clears throat> you know, lighting operators and sound people and casts and rehearsal rooms together. And so that's not, uh, it's not possible now. However, I think that when this is over, it's changed a lot of things. That when it is safe to be together, I think that what it's done is it's given us an awareness of, wow, I don't have to be in New York City to see a show. You can buy a ticket and see it in your home. You know, I think it's opened our minds. I think the same thing is with business. You know, some law firm that has three floors of a downtown building and they're like, you know what, I don't know if we need this. We need one floor and a conference room and everybody can work from home and meet once a week. I think it's opened our eyes and I'm not sure we'll ever completely return to normal. Um, but you know, it, things, uh, it will get better. It will get better. How do you think art and culture will be appreciated once we come out of this you know when we were first starting everyone was watching everything on netflix all the streaming sites you know and all you know film warner brothers just made that huge announcement with hbo about how they're moving all their films online and there's been a lot of talk about whether we should start considering art an essential service where, where are you on how you think it's going to be treated going forward i think art is definitely an essential service and i think that the great empires in history have been the ones that <clears throat> financed and respected art, uh, whether it be painting or, you know, theater or whatever it is. And when those play, those, em those empires started uh, making other priorities and didn't invest in that uh, and didn't create a place for it, it fails. It's, it's essential on so many levels. It's essential. You know, it's funny, you can look back at theater and say, oh my God, that's what was happening in the country and in the world at that time. It is a social reflection, what we, we needed. You know, look at the 30s and the depression when there were all these big movie musicals that were totally escapist, you know, and then there were films that came out in the 60s when everything was very turbulent and political and uh, film and television and theater are a reflection of what's going on and they're historical records of what's going on and they are very essential and art the same way like painting art and sculpting it reflects where we are and we have to see that you know we have to see ourselves and particularly when we're isolated we have to find ourselves in whatever virtual capacity we can, and that's another reason that the timing of this, of my film, of my show, Ham, a musical memoir, is really uh, 
I think a, a good time because it is human and it is funny and it is self-deprecating and it is poignant and it is uh, triumph over adversity. You know, that's the story. And even though the specifics might be mine, it's everybody can find themselves in it, I, I think, I hope. You know, fil filming a, a theater show is nothing new and it's not only are we consuming art in a new way, but I think we're making it in a new way. I know you were a very early uh, YouTube pioneer uh, influencer back in like 2007, eight, I wanna say. So I, I think that's when I first remember watching your videos. Um, how do you how do you think technology has changed the way we express ourselves? Well, I think there's some real pros to that and some real cons. Uh, the pros are that it gives people a means of expression for done cheaply. They can create a song in their house. They can record all the parts. They can look at other people who are, oh, I need that bass player and he's in Victoria. I need, you know, and it can create things. Um, the downside of that is that technology has given us all a wall of anonymity in which we feel we can do and say things that are that we wouldn't say if we were uh had to be in a room with someone we wouldn't say those things we wouldn't the you know the meanness my kid is 12 years old he's in the seventh grade and already there are cyberbullying incidents and things like that and you know things that are disparaging or inappropriate so uh, I think the, the, the pros outweigh the cons. I think that also like in my film again, and I keep referring to it because that's why we're here, but I went through a troubled, uh, you know, I had a teenage uh, attempted suicide. And that's because when you are in that kind of place, you think you're alone. You think you're the only person and no one else gets it. And you decide that it's almost like a, for me, it was like a friend. It was like this idea of something that could save me if nothing else could save me. Meanwhile, now we can reach out to anybody and everybody. We are, nobody is alone. Whatever your issues are, nobody is alone. There's always help. There's always someone else to guide you down the path. And that's really an extraordinary thing that I don't think we had before. And I, again, particularly in this time of isolation, when people are depressed and people are drinking more and people do feel outside, we can connect. You know, you you mentioned, of course, Ham, a musical memoir. Uh, I just had the privilege of watching it, and I know it. Uh, I know it started off as as an actual nonfiction uh, book. Um, right. The was it always part of the plan that you you were going to adapt it for the stage, and and how would you compare writing, you know, a book to creating something for a live audience? Well, I think that my live shows, other than doing other people's shows, theater, my own concerts through the years, which are very theatrical and have a theatrical arcs and places and structure, I think it informed writing the book because I know my voice. I know the way I think and speak and my humor and all that. But no, I had, <clears throat> when I wrote the book, I had no intention of it turning into a musical play. And I was, when I was promoting it, rather than do it in bookstores where you go and do readings, typically things like that, you know, I did it in uh, theaters and in auditoriums. And I took my, my uh, music director of many, many years and I would read a story from the book and then I would sing something that was related to somehow. And when I was doing it in New York, uh, 
two producers approached me and said, do you want to develop this? Do you want to make it into something? And this amazing woman, Susie Dietz, got behind this so hard. And uh, I, as I said, I live in LA and so does Todd, my music director. So we went to New York and worked with my friend, Billy Porter, whom you may know from Pose and uh, everything. He's like this fashionista too. And he's, he's just, he's a brilliant man, not just as an actor and singer, but also as a dramaturg and a director. So we developed it with Billy and he directed the New York production. Then I came to LA and with and had a different director and it just got larger. It got to be a full production. And then we shot it at this gorgeous theater, the Pasadena Playhouse. Um, but no, I didn't imagine that, but it seemed really natural once it started happening. It's kind of where I live, you know? And because it was autobiographical, the difference in the book is it's connect a collection of essays that are not chronological. It's personal stories, show business stories, family stories. But in the play, of course, it's chronological. Um, and then we started writing original material for it, original songs, and then use a lot of songs that people know. So it became this nice little mishmash. I'm glad you saw it. I'm glad you saw it. Uh, uh, the, the folks over at October Coast are always very good in, in sending me screeners and, and materials because you have a lot of you know, yay, big spectacle songs, right? And, and then you have, a, and then you have a lot of songs that are, are, you know, a little more ballads. And so, does does the the time in your life, or or the specific moment in your life that you're talking about, you know, for example, with you know, with with the, with the darning needle, or or right. or, or with the seconal, do, do, right. does that influence the type of song that you're going to create for that moment? Absolutely. In a musical, the uh, a song should always move the plot forward. It should always start somewhere and end somewhere that is different. Otherwise, it's just a commentary on something you've seen. It needs to go forward. And, you know, there's an old saying this, like, why, why, are, why do people sing a song in a, on a show? Well, it's because words are not enough. And then why do they dance? Because a song is not enough. And so it's, it's a, it's an artful magnification of what's happening in the plot for that. So in that scene that you're talking about, there's a song that after I've taken the, the second all, where I'm actually falling asleep and singing this song called Sweet Dreams, which is about having, for those, I'm eager for you guys who are watching to see this, but it becomes after I was 16 and I fell in love with a boy which at the time in culture and in a Bible Belt, Oklahoma, and uh, was so, you know, taboo, so wrong. And I had realized that I would never, at the time I thought, have a normal life, be an open, happy person, be able to share my life with anyone or the world or my parents or my anyone. And having experienced that, that's when I decided this wasn't worth it to be here. And so this song actually, instead of it being a woe is me song, it reflects, it is the place where I am saying I had love and so I'll sleep with sweet dreams because I loved you. You changed me. You, you gave me a different point of view. So it's ironic that in this moment of dying that I am singing basically a love song saying it's okay. It's okay because I don't think very many people have had this feeling, this, this, uh, this love. So, uh, Yes, the songs are always move the plot forward and are a reflection. 
And the scenes will tell you what those are. Something Billy did, Billy Porter did, was because I had these stories and he would say, go home and write the scene. I don't want to hear the story. I want you to play it. And that's why I ended up playing 12 different characters. It's like, write the dialogue. You don't have to be glued to what's just in the book. That's the, that's the blueprint. So um, that's, that's, you know, how the theater was created, the musical. You, you mentioned you, you play 12 different characters and for the most part, you're still telling it in, in first person as yourself. But I know when you played uh, Jerry, your sort of first manager, you, you shift the perspective to him and you start referring to yourself in the third person as, yeah. as Sam. Um, what, what, was, what went into you for, for that change in perspective? Why, why did you feel that was the best way to tell that period of your life? Well, Jerry was my primary mentor and teacher of everything about creativity, about authenticity. And it became a device because, and by the way, the real Jerry is not like, you know, vaudeville. <laughs> it was funny, he's very Jewish. So I was able to use that kind of rhythm, but it became a theatrical device. And it was also that Jerry could say things about me that I could not say about myself. You know, it's like you, Dan are supposed to tell me how fabulous my movie is because I can't say that even though I think it. <laughs> right. Um, so he became a device to be able to narrate that period in my life that I did the TV show that I did star search and, you know, overnight had a, a was recognizable and things really changed. So he was able to tell that story as himself in this sort of vaudeville shtick. And then, as you know, it cuts back and forth to me singing the songs on some of the songs I did on that TV show and how it, the stakes got higher and it got larger and bigger and more important and what happened in my life. So it was like this switch in time. One thing I, I didn't realize is right after you did Star Search, you created a show for television yeah. um, down to earth um, and where, where did that come up? Was, was, was television, did you go to LA because you wanted to be on television but before Broadway or how, how did the, the, how did Down to Earth come to be? Um, you know, there's something wonderful about really youthful ignorance. Nobody tells you you can't do something. Nobody says that's not possible because you can. I was talking about tooting your own horn. You can, when you're 20 years old, you can say, I remember I used to go when I was playing these nasty little clubs and I would go up to somebody and say, you should come see me. I'm really good. I think you'll really like it. You know, you can do that. You can't do that when you get older. And I think with the show, I, my best friend was Bruce Newberg and we co-created a, a musical, a big musical. And we just really worked great as a team. And through a connection, we were able to uh, pitch this show uh, which ran for four years. And uh, it was the first original programming that TBS had done. It was a sitcom. And uh, I didn't know it should be hard. I didn't know that you, that you just don't do that. We don't write a series when you're 22 and somebody buy it. So I just thought everything should happen like that. I have since learned there is, that is not true. <laughs> I, I have a TV show actually now in development that was really moving and going and then COVID hit and just threw it on its ass. So now we're retooling and redoing. And you often hear 
stories, even from huge people, like whatever, Martin Scorsese, it's like, oh, that took 10 years to make that, to get that movie made. It's like, what? You're Martin Scorsese. And the book, uh, my, oh, I have a new book, Dan, called The Substance of All Things. It's fiction, it's my first literary fiction. I'm really proud of it. It just came out a couple of months ago and it's doing great and the reviews have been so sensational, but that was a, that was a four year writing process to write the book. You know, these things take time. I, I was I was going to ask about that since you brought it up. Um, the substance of all things. Uh, two questions, I guess. Is it, you know, obviously, obviously ham is is true. Is there a different mindset when you're writing something that's true versus something that's made up? Absolutely. But when you're writing fiction, everything is based on something or some version that you know, a character, a quirk, a physicality. In, in my new book, it's set in uh, rural Oklahoma, where I was born, uh, in the 60s. It's a little bit time off from my actual childhood, but I know what that smells like. I know what that looks like. I know what the culture is. I know what the, the church is. Uh, so yeah, it's a different mindset, but it all comes from something. Um, you know, even though it's not completely accurate it's influenced certainly by that given your background do you think we'll see uh, some sort of adaptation of the substance of all things whether it's theater or or film in the future dan it is such a movie it is such a movie um it plays reads like a movie it plays movie and i totally see that that's definitely on the big list but right now my, I mean, the book came out, so I'm promoting the book. We're getting it out there. The response has been great. And then, you know, I, when we went with uh, Global Digital as our distributor, they've been so incredible about getting uh, this movie uh, noticed. And you were talking about Warner Brothers and HBO, Lemily Theaters, which is an art chain of theaters all over the country, um, is now going virtual. virtual. So we get to be a part of that big launch and uh, it's great. And the other thing, Dan, is that show, you having seen it, is so freaking hard to do. I am exhausted watching it. And to do it, it required so much physical stamina, uh, vocal stamina, uh, emotional rawness. <laughs> and it was hard when I was doing the production in New York and then in LA. It was, it, it's what I call a prison show. We literally can't do anything else except the show. Everything is about that. And when you have a kid, that makes it difficult. That show fried me. So now it's like, I don't gotta do that anymore. <laughs> it's on film. <laughs> I, I, I don't think people realize just how funny you are. I mean, I, I found you very funny watching this show. When, when you're talking about your own life and, and especially times in your life that can be traumatic, where do you find the humor in that? Well, comedy is tragedy with a twist. We laugh at ourselves, at situations. I don't wanna give any spoilers or anything, but in that scene that we have referred to a couple of times, and I'm glad you mentioned funny because the show is by and large entertainment and funny you know, and then there are these few, there are these darker moments. Something, you know, I, I, I get, as you know, I, there's a lot of self-deprecation in this. And because I have to make fun of myself, 
And I, if I didn't have humor, uh, I don't think I would have survived in anything, particularly career. My kid, as I said, is 12. And when he was born, I wished for two things, health and humor, because if you've got health, well, that's a you know, obvious, but if you've got humor, if you can laugh at yourself and laugh at the world and find a place to uh, twist things, it, it's the greatest survival tool, truly. Don't you find? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. You know, you, you were raised in uh, Sand Spring, Oklahoma, I believe, I, if I have that name correctly, um, yeah. which has neither sand nor springs, as you like to point out. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and I'm from I'm from the west coast of Canada, but it, it strikes me that at least for me, there, there's there's a certain, I guess, culture or lifestyle that's associated with southern upbringing. Um, yeah. How how do you think that has influenced you as an artist? Well, it was great to grow up in a little town. Uh, everybody knew everybody. And uh, because I was really driven, I was really fortunate, Dan, because I knew what I loved and what I wanted to do when I was like, you know, two or three. I just knew. And I had parents that really supported that, uh, those wishes and helped me achieve what was possible in that little town and you know i was bossy and i was driven and i would uh you know bright star direct my own little productions and it was great in that way meanwhile i did always sort of resent a little bit that i didn't grow up in new york city that i didn't grow up where i had access to see more things and of course the downside the upside of a little town is it's comfortable and you know everybody the downside is that you know everybody you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, it has that and I wasn't somebody that really adhered to the rules and to the culture and to the belief, especially of the fire and brimstone church thing. I just never got it. It never uh, resonated with me. And I would get into arguments at a very young age. Um, I got out, I left when I was 15 and um, I took a lot of great stuff with me. Uh, but I knew that I needed to go to be, to find my tribe. You know, you, you, you talk about the church and yet there's also a very poignant scene where your, your friend in, invites you, I think she invites you to a church and you, uh, and, and, and you hear gospel music and even among people who aren't religious or believers, there's very, there's something very, I think, theatrical about gospel music, you know, even as someone who wasn't a church goer, how, how did, how did, what kind of role did gospel music play on your early career? Well, I, I did have to go to church when I was a little kid. I mean, my mom would take me, my dad didn't go, and we went until a certain age. But what happened uh, was when I my friend, Rochelle, took me to the black church, and I heard that music, which was so different from music in the white church, which is very controlled and very pristine and very, and you get into the, a black church where it is raw and hopeful and celebrational and yet about change, about surviving, about we will overcome, which I think appealed to me on a personal level because that's how I felt. I felt like somebody, as a secretive gay boy, little kid, I wasn't that little, I was 15 or 16, 15 when I heard that. Um, and it spoke to me 
and the freedom from which I heard that music. Uh, and it, you know, it appealed to me because as a little kid, I was always into a lot of uh, black pop music. And uh, so it appealed to me on many, many levels, including I think a spiritual level. You know, I didn't just completely divorce myself from it. I just was never into the fire and brimstone. I'm about the love, baby. <laughs> you know, um, you, you you mentioned Billy Porter, who, you know, especially in, in recent years, has uh, a Broadway actor who has made a successful transition into television, uh, yeah. which we which we don't always see, just because they're very different mediums. Um, yeah. But I know you you've had experience on on some sitcoms. You mentioned Down to Earth, but you, I know you're also on The Class and and, and Rules of Engagement. Um, talk about the your I guess your your career trajectory since you've largely stayed in the theater, but you've had a, you've had a little bit of experience. Uh, what went into it for you when you decided this is something that I that, that I want to experience and, and how different did you find TV and the film world from live theater? Well, a lot of it is very similar. Um, particularly a half hour sitcom that's shot that's multi-camera and shot in front of a live audience because what happens is you do a scene and the writers get together after the scene has been shot and they rewrite something or change a line or come and they come to you and say try this do this do this and so you have to be spontaneous and improvis improvisational and take in this new material my theater history really helped me with that because you don't have time to mess around. You know, you have to put it in and it really relies on your fundamentals of comedy. But as a medium difference, it is very different. It's smaller, it's more intimate. You don't have to reach the back row because the back row is, being sorry, because the back row is in your face. Um, but I, I do find also from my theater experiences when I'm not just doing a play, but when I'm doing my own concerts, that is small in many ways that let me turn this off um that is small that is intimate and you must tell the tr truth you must tell the truth there's no faking it or phoning it in especially in a camera situation it's right in your face and with with ham we shot two shows live in front of a live audience without stopping i think one time i stopped to change shirts um but then the next day we uh did a pickup day so the camera could be on the stage and be right here uh, during more intimate scenes. And there is a difference in the way you play it because it's about this and it's about this, you know? Uh, we mentioned your film career and I know one film that you starred in that didn't get a lot of love but had a really good cast, at least I think, uh, was In the Weeds. You had- Oh my uh, God. Bridget Moynihan, you had Ellen Pompeo before she blew up. Yeah. Um, and I know you've also worked on uh, two films with uh, Nicole Kahn, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, but a, a, a film like that, that Into the Weeds, just working with those those powerhouses, do you have any memories of that? Oh God, yes. Well, first of all, Bridget and I met on that show and were immediately brother and sister. And I think part of it is <laughs> she's so gorgeous she's like freakily i'm not straight and us and in the i would just sort of like just study her and go oh my god you're so t i mean like 
over. And so everybody kind of, when you're that gorgeous, people treat you differently, I think. I wouldn't personally know, but people treat you differently. And I was super safe and we were funny together. And the circumstances of shooting that, we shot a lot of it in Brooklyn and in a restaurant. And so we didn't even have trailers for dressing rooms. We were like, and there was just like some room that we, there were uh, sheets up and it was flooding and there were rats. And so <laughs> talk about turning uh, tragedy into comedy, but it was such a great team of people and a really great cast. And man, oh, I loved, I loved doing that. And you know, nobody knows this because they wouldn't, but we did a, a, a TV show was spawned from that where we shot the pilot and it didn't go. But what a great workplace environment, you know, in a restaurant with all the, and for those who don't know, in the weeds as a, as a restaurant term, I guess it applies to other things yeah. too. For like, I'm up to here and I've got 12 tables and I'm doing this and that and, yeah. you know, but yeah, it was a ball. And Bridget and I are still remain so close. I was her birth partner in her, when her son was born, I was in the room and singing in her ear and making her laugh and slept on the floor in her hospital. and. And I uh, officiated her marriage to this great guy, Andrew. So, and she's like so important to, in my son's life. Uh, so it's a, I'm grateful for that movie. And, and I did notice that um, along with a couple other names, she's thanked uh, in the credits for, for Ham. Um, was she was she involved like was she a financial contributor what how did how did she become to be in, involved in some way in this project she was she was a financial contributor but she was also a rock for me when this was being developed and when it went from one form to another yeah and another person i noticed who was in the credits in this you know you you talked a lot about i love lucy uh in 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 your show and then i see one of the contributors is lucy arnez um that, that must have been a, a, a pinch me moment. Well, I've known Lucy for a long, long time and we've done a million benefits together and uh, she's amazing. I mean, she's truly a talent. Uh, she talk about a storyteller. She's the, the real deal, but she's also a mensch. She's also a real person. And when I first came up and I was like after Star Search, when I was getting all this attention, I got really fortunate because a lot of the people that had so influenced me, all of a sudden I was hearing from them or they were asking me to do something. And Lucy, Lucille Ball uh, had, uh, was a fan and asked me to sing at this tribute to her. And then we, she took me to lunch and gave me advice about the business. And she was iconic to all of us. But to me, I mean, I learned so much of my humor and uh, certainly physical comedy from her. So there were a lot of those kind of people. I was lucky. I was never as attracted to the celebrities that were my age, that were my peers, as I was to, yeah. you know, the sort of legendary icons. One other person that I noticed in the credits that I want to bring up because she started in one of my favorite shows forever, uh, Criminal Minds, Kristen Van, uh, Van, Van Ness. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. Um, how how did you two come into contact? Can I tell you something? I've never met her. She <laughs> she heard about uh, the the thing. She saw the show. She wanted to see it become a film, and she was a financial contributor to this movie. I mean, I've said hello. We've met, but we've never we've never even had lunch. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. 
Um, one other person that I realized that was in um, in the weeds who I think if you're of my generation, I mean, I was born in the late 80s, but you grew up in a lot of 80s movies, Molly yeah. Ringwald, you know, who was like queen, she was like queen of the 80s. And now she's transformed herself into to a lot of other roles. Uh, but but working with her, especially at, at that point in, in, in her career, do you, do you have any great memories of that? Well, she's another one that was just a, a, I think when you're thrown into a situation that isn't uh, all separate and everybody has their trailers and nobody's, you know, when you're sort of in the weeds together, uh, real things happen and personal things happen. And she, she's just a great person and certainly understands the ups and downs of, of show business. And then there was a, another play that we were supposed to do together and it didn't, it didn't all come together, but I love working with her. She's, she's great. And it's so fun for me to work with people that, you know, that I've admired and I get to learn from them. And they can, they're, they're, the people who've stayed around are the ones who are the most generous. They're the ones, like sometimes when you're doing a film or something, when it's one camera and you do the reverse, call the reverse. So it's over this show, it's over there. And very often there are some actors who will not read with you when it, the camera's not on them. The stage manager steps in, a PA steps in and they read. And so you're acting with not the actor, but the people, the real greats and the real people who have the real stuff and want the best are the most generous. And um, Molly's one of those. We, we did mention Criminal Minds briefly and you got to experience sort of the whole world of uh, the procedural drama, which was, you know, exploded in the '90s and 2000s when you appeared on uh, CSI, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, the the original. Uh, what was it like for you stepping into that world? And this was already a hugely established show at that point. Well, I'm going to say the same thing about those people because it's very easy when you're a regular on a show that has been going on for years and years, and every single week you have guest stars that you know you're never going to see again, and there are people who are like, yeah, whatever, uh -huh, go on. And then there are people who engage with you because they know that if you're, it's all about the environment. And if you're in a productive environment that is kind and gracious, and what do you need? What do you need? And you create that kind of generosity. That's a great experience. It's, it's when you get into the ones that they don't receive you as, as vital or important or even much of an addition so you don't get the time of day. Um, but I would say that more people are not that way because it's a, it's a, when you are in a, a regular in a show, it is a, a family, it is a, a, a cast of family. And so uh, if, the, if the vibe is cool on the set, it just makes everything better. One thing that I, I really enjoyed uh, watching Ham was the, the baseball analogy you kept using. Uh, I'm a Canadian, but I, I, I'm a huge, huge baseball fan. Um, do you, what was it about, I guess, I mean, obviously growing up in, in, in the States, baseball is, is huge. Um, but, but do you see, I guess, any correlation or relationship between baseball and athletics and, and being in the theater, ju just in terms of the, the, the drive people have to succeed? Well, yeah, and I'm not really a sports fan, as you know from the from watching him. <laughs> I was I was one of the only people I'm sure in the history of Little League 
who didn't make the team. How can you be eight and not make the team? How can someone do that to an eight-year-old? Anyway, I didn't care. Um, um, but the correlation is, it's very funny. It's like when you're doing a show eight times a week, you're doing a Broadway show, and people are like, oh my God, you're so lucky. You only have to work two or three hours a day, two or three hours a night. It's like saying to someone, you know, oh, you're so lucky. You only have to play a football every couple of few days for just a few hours. Your whole life is about that. And in a show that's as exhausting as Ham, you really do have to be a bit of an athlete. You have to be in shape. You have to maintain, you know, vo voice is a little dime-sized muscle. And so, and you know, you don't want to miss. You, and when you're doing your own show, you can't miss. So uh, I think the correlation and the drive and the want, and I think also in a, in a situation in which you are performing either as an athlete or as an actor or a singer, you do, that tribe is very, very important, whether it's your team or your cast, um, and you work for and with each other. Is, you know, in a city such as LA where there are, you know, 20 million sports teams, is it hard to not be a sports fan in that town? Not remotely. <laughs> I don't even know the names of the teams. I don't, I, the only times that I've been to a baseball game have been when I've been singing the national anthem. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, you 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 talk about this idea of of drive, and it strikes me that when you were talking about your 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 childhood in Oklahoma, I think part of your success stems from the fact that that you were you were so driven as a kid to get there. Um, does does having drive correlate to to having success? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You have to want it more than and anything. And you have to be able to fail. You have to be able to try things and fall on your face. You have to be able to experiment and define who you are. And but but I and worth that work ethic. It's just vital. I have so many show injuries, Dan. I've had a hip replacement two knee surgeries, a rotator cuff surgery, all show, all show accidents, speaking of the NFL, um, all show accidents. And it's because you I just keep, you keep working on the injury. You keep like, I can't miss the show. I can't. Um, so, and I think for people who are driven, whatever it is, if they love math and they're obsessed with it and they want to do it, I think it's key to everything. And I think it's in some ways it's more important than talent because there have been people who are mediocre talent-wise, but damn it, they have to do it. They show up, they study their craft, they do everything they can, and they can find success. Now, when somebody has both, then it's a real knock out of the park. Or when somebody just has talent, but they're, they don't invest, they wait for somebody to call them, it ain't gonna happen either. It requires, it requires drive for sure. Which how, is a thing as you get older. <laughs> how then do you do you define success, and do you look at it differently now than you did, say, when you won Star Search? Oh, for sure, for sure. I think when I was really young, success was defined by how many people love you. It was defined by how many people bought your record, or 
was was that sold out or did, what did the review say you know it was all outside in and i think as one grows older and does more things the success comes from what you have invested and what you've created you know it's like i have a as you know i've mentioned my kids in seventh grade and i noticed you know the grades for instance if he just got straight A's across the board and it meant nothing, it was like so easy for him, it doesn't mean as much as if he gets that B, but he really worked for it. You know, that's who I, that's who we want him to be. Uh, so it is about that, that drive and that investment. You know, you, you, you've mentioned your, your, your son a few times. And I, I love the very end where you, you go back into your bedroom and we all think that you've gone back to your childhood and then you're, you're talking to your dad and then you say, and then you say Cooper's name and you're like, Oh, um, when you, when you first became a, a, a father, how much did you look back on your own childhood and in your relationship with, with Bill? And, and how did that influence of saying, I want to do this or, or I don't want to be this type of father? That's tricky because <clears throat> my father and I had a lot of relationship issues during the years. And it wasn't until Cooper was born that his true benevolence really came out. And he, in the play, as you know, he says, you're going to be a better father than I was. Um, and I learned a lot from him. He introduced me to music in ways that no one else could have. He introduced me to great performers and would take me to concerts and things. We used to play this amazing game where he would put on a classical music and then say, close your eyes and tell me the story. As if my, my imagination was being underscored by the music. And what that did for me was it taught me that music is alive and it does create that. It creates that, that thing, that emotion, that imagination and the impact of it. He did a lot of great things. He wasn't... Uh, <clears throat> He was very, very supportive. I say was, he died a year ago. Um, he was very, very supportive, but it was always with a bit of a judgment. It was never quite good enough. It was always, and I think that might've had something to do with my drive about proving myself, about, I believe that nothing was enough. Nothing was enough. And I think it's because it wasn't really ever enough in my father's eyes. And he would celebrate me to other people I remember once I was doing a concert in Tulsa, which is the nearest bigger town to Sand Springs. And it had been a great success and it was a huge production. It was so wonderful. And we all went to dinner after, uh, you know, me and my, the backup girls, my music director and my family. And I had gone to the bathroom. And when I came back, my mom said, Bill, tell him what you were saying. Bill, tell him, tell, tell him what you were. He was bragging about me and talking about how brilliant I was and how much it meant. And he looked at me and he said, the bass player was out of tune in the third song. And like, really? That's all you can come up with? <laughs> so there's a, a friend of mine, a brilliant actor, Frank Langella, said something to me once that uh, is I really believe in. It's, he called it the second kiss syndrome, in which at a very young age, you get that one kiss, that one stamp of approval, that one thing from your father and you spend the rest of your life trying to get the second kiss, be it from the parents or lovers or audiences. And he was saying so many of us who have chosen show business, 
it's because of the first kiss syndrome. We are looking for that love and that approval and that acknowledgement. I think it's true for me. You know, on that note, how do you think fatherhood has, has affected you creatively? And in, are you now trying to get the first kiss of approval from your son rather than from your father? I'm not trying to get the first kiss syndrome from my son. It's not about me. Forever it was about me and my husband, Danny. And we came to a place where our lives were good and rich. And we decided to take the step up to have the new level of what love can be. And it's more, it's everything now. You were talking about change in perspective. You know, it's much larger. It's loving beyond capacity that I ever thought I could. And so he's everything. My family, my husband and my son are the priority above all everything. And now my work is what I do more than who I am. You know, I mean, it is who I am, but it's, it's, I'm, my, my uh, emotional well-being is not reliant upon it because my focus is my family. Two things quickly I, I wanted to touch on. Um, there's, there's a very powerful moment at the end where you're singing right or wrong, uh, this is who I'm supposed to be or, 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 or something like that. Um, ha have you, have you, when was the last time you thought about who you were supposed to be or, or, and has that changed from when you were young, you know, you, you had this big idea of what being a star was and, uh, uh, until now. I think that in being a father and teaching my child that whoever you are, is who you, I want you to be a good citizen. I want you to have a good work ethic. I want you to invest in your life. I want you to be kind. He has a sign in his, in his a poster in his room that says, be kind, be kind, be kind. And so uh, that, that's the difference now, that my focus is on, when I see it in him, that nothing is wrong with you. And I always thought something was wrong with me. Always thought something was wrong with me. And when I see my son and I know that as a father, I can say to him, there is nothing wrong with you. That also helps me too, you know, physician heal thyself. Uh, so, uh, it's where I am now. And uh, it's it, the fatherhood's changed me, of course, in every way. And, and finally, because I know you got to run off, but I remember becoming aware of you at the same time I was becoming, of, uh, becoming aware of another uh, sort of public figure named Sam Harris, the, the author and, and neuroscientist. I'm just, I'm just curious, have you ever been confused for the other Sam Harris? I have had things where people post um, things on like Facebook or something that are, they're usually very angry um, <laughs> <laughs> because he can be controversial. And they're right. Well, how can you say this? And how can you believe that? And, uh, you know, we're like, you know, I think you, I really hope you have the wrong person. <laughs> so that has happened. Yes. Or people have bought my books and say, uh, and they write a review like, well, I thought this was by the other Sam Harris, but I'm really glad I got it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the uh, new film is Ham, uh, a musical memoir starring uh, Sam Harris, it's out. It's a brilliant film. I encourage all listeners to see it. And you also have a novel out, The Substance uh, of All Things. Uh, Dan, where can they see this movie? Oh, uh, uh, Ham, a, a musical memoir. Yes, uh, it is online now, isn't it? 
Yes. At Lemley. L-A-E-M-E-L-L-E or something like that. Yes, you can watch it that way. And then in January, it's going to be on Broadway HD for also an exclusive period. And then it'll be uh, wider. But right now it's at Lemley. And if you can somehow put that information up, because I don't know how to get anybody. I don't know. Yeah, I will. I, I, I can. I can. Okay. I'll, I'll put I'll put that in 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 the show notes as as, as we like to call it the yeah. uh, the the you know the 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 one page I guess you know yeah. use a probably term Sam Harris thank you so much this this has been this has been great this is a real treat I really really enjoyed it thank you so much Dan be well thank be you safe. you too take care have fun with your family will do bye bye cheers bye and that was my conversation with. Long time Broadway performer, singer, actor, author, Sam Harris. His new film is Ham, a musical memoir, a film version of his acclaimed one-man show. It is out now on Lamley Theatres. That's L-A-E-M-M-L-E, and it will be available for on-demand and streaming starting January 7th. Also, be sure to check out his book, The Substance of All Things. You heard us talk about CSI a little bit. Uh, Coming up on the show next week, I will be speaking with CSI original cast member Gary Dorden, who played Warwick Brown. He's in a new film called Redemption Day, so stay tuned for that. That does it for me today. Be sure to subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google, Deezer, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are also available on Mnet Radio Mission. Social media is at Endeavors Radio, or you can visit the website EndeavorsMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next time. Goodbye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex.